Lord, we come before you, I pray, in humility, uh, that we would be teachable, God, that we would understand what you in your sovereignty want to speak to your children tonight. God, as individuals, we would recognize that you, the living God, uh, wants to breathe life into us. And so often you want to bring life into the dead areas of our life. God, I pray that you would challenge us through this passage, that we would be able to relate to it, that we would be able to pull things from this text uh, and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would pour out your love on us. So fill us with your spirit and guide us through your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Last week, we looked at some of the final words recorded by David, at least the final poetic words that we have in the text. It says these are the final words of David. And David, looking back at his life, he realized where he came from. He remembered who he was, but he also realized how far God had brought him, as he says, the the one who was raised up. David didn't raise himself up. It was God who raised him up. And then he recalls the Davidic covenant, this everlasting promise that God, he was sure, would be faithful to keep. We see that promise was ultimately fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus Christ, him being the King of kings and Lord of lords, through whom we receive eternal life. The very same promise that was given to David, we benefit from. So the author, after he discusses these final words of David, he switches gears and he begins to focus on David's mighty men. These are men, 37 in all, who were willing to risk it all for their king. The title of this teaching is The King's Mighty Men. The King's Mighty Men. David didn't become the man that he became, or the king that he became, on his own. He had help, and it's pivotal for every leader to have a strong, supportive, surrounding cast. The state of a nation or the state of a church isn't solely contingent upon the state of the leader, but it's also contingent upon the state of the leaders surrounding the leader. You look at so many leaders throughout history, and often the greatest leaders had the greatest team. You look at Michael Jordan, right? Greatest basketball player that that ever lived, right? We can debate about LeBron James later. But the Chicago Bulls were one of the best teams that ever existed, but it wasn't just Michael Jordan on his own. He had Scottie Pippen, he had Dennis Rodman, he had all these other players on his team. Michael Jordan wouldn't have won all those titles if he didn't have this supportive, strong, surrounding cast. Same holds true spiritually. As we'll see, David, he had this strong, supportive, surrounding cast. But it's not just David. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it with Moses. And Moses had this situation. Joshua fighting. Moses is praying. And in Exodus chapter 17, and verses 12 to 13, what happens? Moses starts getting weary. His arms start getting tired. As his arms start falling down, what happens? Joshua looks like he's losing. But as his arms go up, what happens? Joshua looks like he's winning. So her and Aaron, they see this and they go, we need to support this guy. We need to lift up his arms because the victory is contingent upon the supporting cast. 
without her and Aaron lifting up the arms of Moses, what happens in that battle? We probably read a different story. See, leaders need the support of other leaders in order to be victorious. Now, as I mentioned, the title of this teaching is The King's Mighty Men. We'll be speaking of David's mighty men, but we'll connect it to the fact that we're all called to be the King of Kings' mighty men. We're all called to be good soldiers for Jesus Christ. That we would go to battle on His behalf. That we would risk it all for the Lord. That we'd be willing to forsake all for the Lord. As far as the kingdom goes, it's a little different. Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't need us in order to be victorious. He already was victorious. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. He desperately wants us. He desperately wants to use us. And he wants to be able to call us his mighty men and women of valor. Those who are willing to risk all for the advancement of the kingdom. We'll see here in this passage that these are the type of men that David had surrounding him. These are the type of men and women that we're called to be. Let's look at it. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. These mighty men. As we get closer to the end of David's life, we see that the author finds it very important that we understand that David didn't do this alone. He had these mighty men. And had David not had these mighty men, he likely wouldn't have experienced the victories that he experienced. See, David was next to nothing without these mighty men. But these mighty men were nothing without King David and his leadership. See, we're nothing without the king. We're nothing without King Jesus. And it's by his grace that he's invited us to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. It's by his grace that he's called us to be mighty men and women of valor. This is point number one. We're called to be the king's mighty men. We're called to be the king's mighty men. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to plant yourself there for a little while. Starting in verse 1, we read, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. As Paul encourages this young pastor, Timothy, timid Timothy, the first thing he says is be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's by his grace that God calls us to be good soldiers. It's not because we have so much to offer. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because we have so little to offer. These are David's mighty men. Let me show you in 1 Samuel chapter 22, when we're first introduced to this bunch, we read here, as David is fleeing from King Saul, we see these specific men, these outcasts, these people who were in debt, these rejects start following David. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, it said, David therefore, therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave 
of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. So we see there are about 400. Our text is going to specifically focus on these 37 mighty men. Nevertheless, we see these men were rejects. They were outcasts. This is a picture of us and how we come to Jesus. We're rejects. We're we're outcasts. We're in debt. Eternally in debt. Called to pay the price with our life for the wages of sin is death. So we come to Jesus because we got nowhere else to go. That was these men. See, Christ, He didn't choose us because we were mighty. He chose us because we're weak. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God transforms the weak, the helpless, the hopeless. And he transforms them and makes them into something different, something special, something better. He takes a bunch of nobodies and makes them somebodies. These are the mighty men. These are the disciples. This is us. He says, be strong, Timothy, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're to be strong in his grace. In other words, his grace is our motivation to fight. When grace is my motivation, I don't have to be afraid to fail. Because God knows I'm going to fail. He knows I'm not always going to fight the battle the right way. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to trip up. I'm going to slip up. But I'm called to be strong in His grace. See, He doesn't say be strong in your performance. Be strong in your abilities. Be strong in your giftings. That's not what He says. He says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, our strength is not in our success. Our strength is in our Father's love for us. That whether we fail or whether we succeed, we can be strong in His grace because His grace for us, it never changes. It's always there. It's always there for us to receive. So He says, Timothy, you young soldier, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Our responsibility as good soldiers for Jesus Christ is to invest the things that have been invested into us. We're called to invest those things into other people. It's a moral obligation. It's a spiritual obligation. Now, we shouldn't look at it as an obligation. We should look at it as an opportunity. Nevertheless, we're called to do it. The things that Christ is teaching us, we're called to teach others those same things. Are you investing the things that God has taught you, that Jesus Christ has taught you through His Word? Are you taking those things and investing them into others? If not then what's stopping you? Is it fear? I'm afraid of failure. 
I'm afraid of whatever. I'm afraid of their faces. I'm afraid how they're going to respond. I'm, going to, I'm afraid of the, the questions they might have that I might not be able to answer. Is it apathy, complacency? I know I'm supposed to do it. I just don't want to. I don't want to take the time. I don't want to take the effort. I don't want to take the, the energy to open my mouth and have this conversation. Is it feeling like you're ill-equipped, like you don't know enough? We can come up with many excuses as to why we're not taking the things that Christ is investing into us and investing into others, but no excuse is good. We're called to do it, each and every one of us, not just the pastors, not just scholars, not just theologians, not just evangelists, every single one of us. We don't have to know it all. None of us are going to know it all. But he's not asking us to invest the things into people that we don't know. He's asking us to invest into people all that we do know. Just invest what you know. That's it. That's what he's asking. That's what he's calling us to. I challenge you, each and every one of you, hear me. Each and every one of you, this week, make it a point. That's something that you learned recently from the Bible. Something that Jesus spoke to you recently. Maybe it was personally. Maybe it was through your devotions. Maybe it was through a teaching. Maybe it was through a podcast. Maybe God spoke to you while you were walking your dog. I don't know. Something. Whatever the Lord's speaking to you, just have one conversation with one person. See, good soldiers for Jesus Christ are raised up one conversation at a time. It's one conversation at a time. That's what it is. As we take the things that God has entrusted to us, because knowledge, the information, the understanding, it, it's not just something that He's given to us. We're stewards of it. He's entrusting it to us. He's saying this stuff that I've given you, this precious information, these mysteries regarding the kingdom of God, I'm entrusting this to you. What are you going to do with it? Are you just going to take it and sit on it? Are you, are you going to spread it? Because the gospel isn't to be received and sat on. It's to be received and delivered. It's called the spread. If the gospel ends with you, then the gospel isn't doing its job. We have a moral ob obligation to invest the things that Christ has invested into us, into other people. So he says, young Timothy, quit being afraid, man. God's called you to this. This is what we're all called to do as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. Take the things that you've heard, invest them in other people. Then he says in verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's difficult to be a soldier. Jesus promises that if we answer the call, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. You don't look out at a battlefield and people getting wiped out and say, this is going to be easy. Oh, piece of cake. No. What do you think? You think if I enter this battle, I got a lot to lose. I'm risking something. I might lose something. I might lose an arm. I might lose an eye. I might lose a leg. I might lose a friend. I might lose a family member. I might even lose my very own life. But Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14 that that's what we signed up for as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we signed up for when we asked Him to come into our life. It says in Luke chapter 14, in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, He says, 
For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he was he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began uh, to build and was not able to finish. He said, Don't start something that you're not prepared to finish. Count the cost. Consider what you've signed up for. And then he says this in verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says there's a cost to following me. There's a cost to being a soldier. You are going to lose things. It is inevitable. You are going to lose limbs, perhaps. You are going to to lose eyes, perhaps. You are going to lose friends, perhaps. You are going to lose family, perhaps. There is going to be death. There is going to be loss. Jesus said it's going to happen, and this this is what you signed up for. However, there's good news. What we lose in the battle on earth doesn't compare what we gain when the battle is over and jesus makes this very clear as well in matthew chapter 19 after he has this conversation with the rich young ruler he tells the disciples hey listen uh it's next to impossible for a rich man to get saved because they make materialism their idol he's not saying it is impossible he says it's next to impossible and then peter says well what about us we left everything we forsook all and followed you followed you And Jesus tells him, hey, listen, everything that you left behind, everything that you lost in this life, you're going to receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. So don't worry about what you lose in this life because God's going to make up for it in the next. Yes, we count the cost now, but there's a reward to be gained later. So he says, Timothy, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse four. 2 Timothy 2, 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, soldiers can't live like civilians. They don't have the comforts and conveniences that civilians have. They got to constantly be ready for battle. Don't get so distracted by the cares of this world that you forget you're in a battle while you're on earth. This this whole lifetime, our whole existence is one long battle. And as soldiers, we've been called to live lives set apart from the world, lives different than civilians, lives different than people that are focused on the cares of this world, comfort, conveniences, whatever the case may be. Called to be different. Soldiers are different. If the world can't tell the difference between your life and theirs and that tells me you forgot that you're in the battle you're in a battle we're called to look different you you see a soldier you recognize a soldier why because they're in uniform that we see oh that guy's a soldier he's not a civilian we too are called to put on the armor of god we too are called to live differently to walk differently to talk differently to think differently across the board it says no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. When we die, 
or when the Lord comes back to get us, whatever happens first, I guarantee you, you, your last thoughts aren't going to be, man, I wish I would have taken one more trip to Disneyland. I I, I wish I would have went one more time. It's not going to be, I wish I would have finished my favorite series on Netflix. It's not going to be, I wish I would have bought that new car with my last days on earth or or that new house. No, what are we going to be thinking? Man, I wish I would have shared the gospel more. I wish I would have told more people about Jesus. I I wish I would have spent more time on my knees praying for the lost. I wish I would have done things differently. I wish I, I would have taken the battle more seriously. That's what we'll be thinking. And yeah, we'll be in paradise forever. But you better believe the moment he comes back, it's going to be like the twinkling of an eye. But we'll be able to consider in that moment, oh my gosh, what did I do with the grace of God? Did, did I make the most of it? Or did I squander it? What did I do with it? Did I answer this call to be a good soldier or not? tells us the objective of a good soldier here in verse 4 that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier this is our number one goal as soldiers for jesus christ we're called to live lives that please the one who enlisted us we're called to live lives that to please our king to to please our commander the commander of the armies of the lord of hosts this is our primary objective in this life in colossians chapter 3 verse 23 It says, do everything as unto the Lord. Everything. Everything means everything. He's saying every single thing. How you eat, what you eat, your sleep, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you work, the way you work out, the way you have conversations with your family members, how you have conversations with your friends. Do everything as unto the Lord. Do you ask yourself on a consistent basis, how can I accomplish the task before me in a way who's going to please the one who enlisted me as a soldier? How am I going to walk through this day with every little thing that's on my plate and accomplish these things in a way that's going to bring God glory? Because if we're just doing things to do things, then we're forgetting the point of being a soldier. We're not called to just do things to do things. We're not called to just check off our to-do list to check off our to-do list. We're not called to just dump the stuff off our plate or take care of the things on our plate just to do it. We're called to do it all to please Him. Sometimes that can be difficult. How do I please the Lord? Well, well, going to the gym or going to work or doing this or doing that. you got to ask Him. God, how can I please you in this? Uh, with my work today, with my task today, how can I please you? How can I glorify you in the time that I'm spending with my family? How can I please you in the time that I'm spending in my devotions? Or my, is my heart really in it? How can I please you, Lord? Back to 2 Samuel chapter 24, or sorry, 23. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, these mighty men, as we already discussed in 1 Samuel 22, these mighty men didn't start following David when he was at the peak of his rule and reign. These mighty men were the men that started 
following him when he was a reject, when he was an outcast, when he was literally kicked out of the palace by King Saul. This is when these mighty men initially started following Jesus. Or sorry, uh, David. They didn't follow David for what they thought they could get from David. David had nothing. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was living in a cave. He had no possessions. He had no nothing. He had to borrow bread from the priest in the beginning. He had no food. Nothing. There was nothing about David that you'd want to follow as far as material gain is concerned. Why did they follow him? Because of their love for him. Sadly, so many people follow Jesus because uh, of what they think they're going to get from him. Uh, I want the blessings that are involved in being a Christian. Uh, I want the kingdom. Uh, I want heaven. But I'm not concerned about Jesus. Sadly, many people who call him Lord, Lord, only call him Lord, Lord because of what he has, but not because of who he is. True followers of Jesus Christ are going to follow him and stick by his side through thick and thin, even when the world rejects him. These men, they stood by David's side when David was in the pit, when he was in the cave. And then now they're able to stand by David's side when he's ruling and reigning. Same holds true for us. We live in an era where Christ is rejected largely. Jesus says, hey, you stand by my side now. You profess my name now. You spread my name now. And you're going to rule and reign with me forever. This is the promise that we're given from Jesus Christ as believers, as genuine, sincere followers. These men were loyal. They were faithful to David. Let's look at some of these men. Picking it up in verse 8. Have grace on me with some of these names. Joshabashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was also called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Hmm. The <laughs> Ahothite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Hararite, the Philistines had gathered together into a group where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Let's talk about some of these guys. So you have this guy, Adino. He killed 800 dudes at once. Like, that's a big deal. 800 guys all at the same time. The Bible's given us a spiritual Lesson here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome against impossible odds. God can give us the power to overcome mountains. To say to this mountain, be removed. In other words, He can give us the power to overcome obstacles in life that seem next to impossible. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't look at 800 men and go, I got this. I'd go, oh shoot, I'm done for. Not this guy. He knew. Who his God was. He knew the strength of Yahweh. By the strength of Yahweh, he was able 
to overcome these 800 men. Next, we're introduced to Eleazar. Eleazar. He, he stood his ground when everyone else fled. It said Israel retreated, but not Eleazar. He stood his ground. He stood strong in the Lord. And when everyone else was afraid, when everyone else bailed, Eleazar continued to fight. This is point number two. We're called to continue to fight even when everyone else bails. We're called to continue to fight even when everyone else bails. Sometimes we can feel like we're fighting the good fight by ourselves. Sometimes we can feel like we've been abandoned even by believers. Sometimes we can feel like we don't have the support that we need. But even when we don't feel like we have the support that we need, will we continue to fight the good fight? In John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus just called these people out. He fed the 5,000. They keep following them because they want the bread. Jesus says, you just follow me from the bread for the bread, but what you really need is the bread of life. And then he went on to say this hard saying, this tough saying. He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't, you have no life in you. You don't get eternal life if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, oh my gosh, this guy is a cannibal. Okay, what are we going to do with this dude? He's out of his mind. And because they were unspiritual, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, they had a carnal mindset, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So it says here in John chapter 6, verse 66, from that time, because of those things that he said, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many people bailed on Jesus when it was no longer popular, when it was no longer convenient, when Jesus challenged them in a way that they weren't used to, when Jesus gave them something difficult to chew on, something difficult to receive, something difficult to accept, they bailed on Jesus. So Jesus has this dialogue with the disciples. It says in verse 67, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Here's your opportunity. Everybody else is leaving. Do do you want to go away? Do you want to bail? These people don't want to be good soldiers. They don't want to fight the good fight. They're following me for what they think they're going to get out of me. But they don't really want to fight. They don't want to get their hands dirty. Simon Peter responds in verse 68, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you still follow Jesus? Would you still fight the good fight if every single person you knew, wife, husband, children, friends, family members, if every believer you knew on the face of this earth decided, I'm walking away from Jesus, would you still follow him? Would you still fight the good fight if everyone else bailed? See, we'll find out if we're a true soldier or not when everyone else bails and we're left to make a decision on our own. And he says, are you still going to follow me? Regardless of what the world does, regardless of what everybody else does, are you going to continue to follow me? Are you going to continue to fight the good fight? Are you going to continue to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ? Eleazar was this type of guy. He wasn't deterred. He wasn't distracted by the fact that everybody else bailed. He continued to fight. And it says that God brought uh, brought about a victory because Eleazar, he stood strong. We see through Eleazar that God can win a battle through 
one willing soldier. Just one. It's all he needs is one. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. In Ezekiel 22, 30. God poses this question. He says he, he's searching for someone. A, a man. That's willing to stand in the gap. And in that text he says he found no one. There's no one that was willing. But we have an opportunity to respond to that question with a yes or a no. If God asks us that question, because that's what he's searching for. Someone who's willing to be a good soldier. Someone who is willing to stand in the gap. Someone who is willing to risk it all, even though everyone else isn't. Are you that person? Are you that man? Are you that woman? Are you the one willing to stand in the gap when no one else will? Eleazar, he was that man. And that's all God needs. All he needs is one willing soldier to stand strong, to stand in the gap. And he'll bring about victory for the people because of one willing soldier. That's what we see here in this text. It says Eleazar, he continued to fight, it says in verse 10, until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Okay, He's fighting with such ferocity, with such intensity. He's working through the pain. He's fighting past the difficulty, fighting past the hardship, fighting past all the agony. Until what? Until the battle is won. This is point number three. We're called to continue to fight until the battle is won is over we're called to continue to fight until the battle is over paul says it like this in galatians chapter 6 verse 9 he says and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart pressing on is painful continuing to fight the battle day in and day out it's difficult it's hard it's agonizing It hurts. But he says, hey, if you keep pressing on, guess what? There's a reward. You're going to reap what you sow. And if you keep fighting the rest of your life until God takes you home or he comes back to get you, he says, you're going to get a reward. You're going to experience victory in this life and you're going to experience heavenly treasures in the next life. There's a reward for continuing to press on. There's a reward for continuing to fight the good fight until the battle's over. This is what Eleazar did. Despite the pain, he pressed on. We're introduced to this guy named Shema. See, another willing soldier who God used to bring victory. But the Bible makes it clear. Look at verse 12, that last sentence. So the Lord brought about a great victory. The author wants us to know that it's not the might of these mighty men that's bringing about victory. It's because these mighty men serve a mighty God. That's why they're victorious. That's why they're declared mighty men. These mighty men were probably, I don't know, they were probably like little scrawny guys. They they were probably like the guys, I don't know, I'm just making this up, okay? Follow me though. They were probably like the, 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 the Steve Urkel kind of guys. They were probably like these skinny dudes that like really didn't look like very impressive. But they brought, a, they, they brought these great victories. Why? Because they had the power of God on their side. They, they had this mighty God. It was the mighty God that made them mighty men. It wasn't their might. It was the Lord's might that made them mighty. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 23. I don't know what they looked like. You know, 
Could have been jacked, I don't know. Verse 13. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rethium. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of Philistines was, in Beth, was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in, je- uh, went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. There's not a lot said about these three mighty men other than this story. Because this is the story that God thought stood out among all other stories. For all we know, they maybe didn't do really much else, but they did this. What did they do? They were willing to risk their lives to get David a drink from Bethlehem. In other words, they were willing to risk their lives to please their king in the little things. This is point number four. We're called to risk it all to please our king in the little things. We're called to risk it all to please our king in the little things. That's what's so special about these three mighty men. It doesn't say they wiped out 800 dudes. It doesn't say, as we'll see in these other stories, that they killed lions and these giant people. No. They went and got David a cup of water. And they're declared the mightiest of them all. Why? Because this is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for someone who will be faithful in the little things. That's what he's looking for. That's what his heart's set on. He even says it in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. He says, if you're not faithful with the little things, you're not going to be faithful with the big things. So I'm looking at the little things in your life. Why? Sometimes it's harder to be faithful with the little things than it is to be faithful with the big things. Sometimes it's a lot harder. Jesus is looking at those little areas of your life, those little acts of faithfulness. Are you faithful to get up each morning and seek the Lord? Are you faithful to get in the Word on a consistent basis? Are you faithful to pray without ceasing, as Terry was talking about? Are you faithful to seek Him? When, not seems, when there's not a lot that seems to be going on in your life, you're not fi- facing a big trial. You're not facing a big giant. Are you faithful to be the spiritual leader that God has called you to be? Dads, are you faithful to invest in your wife and invest in your husband? Wives, are, are you faithful to invest in your children and support your husband? God's looking at the faithful things. Sometimes... It's harder to pick up the phone when a friend or family member calls than it is to do the big things. Why is that? Sometimes it's harder. We, it's our perspective. We put more focus on the big things. The Lord, He's putting more focus on the little things. On the little things. I'm convinced absolutely that God is more concerned with my daily devotional life than He is with me preaching messages. 
He's looking at the little acts of faithfulness in my life. He's looking at the little acts of faithfulness in your life. Because he says, don't think you're going to be faithful with the big things if you're not being faithful with the little things. I'm looking at the little things. The things that you see as mundane. The things that you see as inconvenient. Those are the things that I care about. Because those are the things that really reveal who you actually are. If we neglect the little things and we just try to be faithful with the big things, we're doing it all backwards. God says, I'd rather you be faithful with the little things. And I'll make you ruler over many things. But we've got to learn to be faithful with the little things. What stands out to Jesus more than giant slayers are those who are willing to make sacrifices in the little things to please him. That's what stands out even more than the giant slayers. These men are commended more than any of the other men. Why? Because they got David a drink of water. They purposed to please him with something little. This is what the Lord's looking for in our life. Be faithful with the little things. So David, he gets the cup of water, but he wouldn't drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. David, don't get it twisted. He was honored by the sacrifice of this man. He, these men. He, he was more than honored. He was so honored, he felt unworthy. So he pours the water out on the ground. This wasn't an act of wastefulness. This was an act of worship. He, he recognized that these men risked it all in the little things to get him a little cup of water because that's what they thought that he wanted. And he did want it. But David recognized only Yahweh is worthy of a sacrifice like this. He likened that water, the text says here, to the blood of his men. He saw it as a symbol. They were willing to spill spill their blood to please their king. And David realized only Yahweh is worthy of the spilled blood of his saints. David felt unworthy. He knew, I got to give this to the Lord. This drink is for the Lord. These men might have done this for me, but their faithfulness above honoring me, ultimately honored the Lord. These men, the three mighty men, the mightiest of them all, mighty, because they were faithful in the little things. Second Samuel, chapter 23, verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the chief of another three, he lifted his spear against 300 men, Killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and won a name among three mighty men. So we see a few different important guys here. He discusses Abishai, who the text says was the brother of Joab. Now, Abishai, we've seen him quite a bit in First and Second Samuel. He was the one that went with David to go take the spear and the jug of water from Saul. You remember that second time that David had the chance to king, kill King Saul? Abishai was the one that stepped up and said, I'll go with you. 
Uh, we also see uh, that Abishai was the one that with his brother ended up killing Abner, which was uh, um, an unhonorable act. Okay, that wasn't a commendable one. Uh, and he also offered to behead Shammai. You remember that descendant of Saul who was cursing David and throwing stones at him and his men. And, and he said, can we just wipe this guy out already? And David says, well, hey, maybe God sent this dude to tell me this. Maybe God is, is trying to humble me. Maybe God is trying to test me. And if he sees how I respond, then maybe God will honor me. And God ultimately did. This is Abishai. But Abishai did not attain to the three, the first three. What three? The three that got that water for David in Bethlehem. Then he speaks of Benaniah, killed two lion-like heroes, giant men likely, these big guys, one of them an Egyptian he came after him, took the spear out of his hand and killed him with his own spear. This guy went after a lion in a snowy pit. It says he went down to the lion. doesn't say that the lion went after him. This guy saw a lion. He's like, hey, man, this is a threat. I'm going to go down and get that lion. Who would do that, right? It's like, oh, there's a lion. Eh, I'm going to take that lion out, right? Not me. If I saw a mountain lion, he's talking about a big lion. If I saw a mountain lion, I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm out, right? Benaniah, not, not that kind of guy. He slays this lion. He slays these two lion-like heroes of Moab. Benaniah was a premier leader. He had a high standing with David in the kingdom. But he wasn't one of the three. The Bible keeps saying this. He wasn't one of the three. He wasn't one of the three. He didn't attain to the three. Why? Because the author wants us to know, once again, that God, above killing lions, slaying giant Egyptians, overcoming these giant obstacles, God is concerned with the little things, being faithful with the little things. He's going to keep telling this, us this over and over and over again. They didn't attain to the three. They didn't have the same level of faithfulness. They did the big things. That's great. But they didn't have the faithfulness of the three. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 24. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elahanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema, the, uh, the Herodite, Herodite, Elikah, the Herodite, Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ekesh, the Tekoite, Abiazar, the Anathothite, Mebunai, the Hushethite, Zalman, the Ahothite, Maharai, the Netophathite, Helob, the son of Banna, the Netophathite, Fathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai. <laughs> I don't know if you say that right. Maybe. <laughs> the son of Ribai from Gibeah. <laughs> How would you like that? I mean, Gibeah. The children of Benjamin. Beniah, a Parathonite. Hittai from the brooks of Gesh. Abi Alban, the Arbathite. Asmaveth, the Baruhumite. Ili Abba, the Shalbanite of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shema, the Herorite, Aheim, the son of Sherar, the Herorite, Elephelet, the son of Ahashbai, the son of 
Machathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezri, the Carmelite, Perai, the Arbite, Igel, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Zaharai, the Berathite, armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruai, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Whoo! So, we mentioned a couple names in here. <laughs> God, forgive me for those. The pronunciation of those names. Okay, so we see Eliam, uh, the son of Ahithophel. This was the father of Bathsheba. So we're going to see among David's mighty men is the father of Bathsheba. Remember Ahithophel, he was that, that wise counselor. They said when he spoke, it was like the oracles of God. Like he had this just divine wisdom. Basically everything he ever said was right all the time. He ended up uh, betraying David, maybe because he's the grandfather of Bathsheba and he knows what happened with Bathsheba. And then he ends up hanging himself when he realizes that Absalom is going to lose because he took the wrong advice. He didn't take Ahithophel's, Ahithophel's advice. And lastly, among these, we see Uriah the Hittite. That's the husband of Bathsheba, the one who was such a man of valor, such a faithful man. After David had slept with his wife, he calls him back home, tries to manipulate him, tries to deceive him into sleeping with Bathsheba so he could claim the kid kid was his and not David's, and he wouldn't do it. Slept outside the house, slept outside the palace, wouldn't come in to be with his wife, thought it wasn't right to go and sleep with his wife while his men are off to war. And then David, because he didn't know what else to do, he's trying to cover up his sin, he, he ends up killing him. He has him kill Uriah. Mentioned at the end of this story, reminds us that David, though he was the greatest king that Israel ever had, other than obviously Jesus, he wasn't a perfect king. He made mistakes. He betrayed people that were loyal to him. He messed up. He slipped up. But nevertheless, David is considered one of God's mighty men. His anointed king. We see here the 30, as they were referred to as, are actually 37. Though David had many more men than this, we see originally 400. Then there's this uh, number 600 we keep getting. But at this point, uh, we'll see when he does the census. He has over a million soldiers at this point. But out of the 13, 1,300,000 soldiers, depending whether you look at Second Samuel or, or First Chronicles, we'll get into that next week, these men are mentioned and given more praise than the rest. But it's interesting. These men, once again, started off as what? They started off as rejects. They started off as outcasts. They were nobodies. They were just looking for someone to follow and they fell in love with David. And through David's investment and David's leadership, these men went from being nobodies to becoming somebodies. It's a picture of our relationship with Jesus and what he does with us. Fifth and final point. The king wants to take sinners and make them soldiers. 
The king wants to take sinners and make them soldiers. That's what Jesus does with us. We come as we come to him as as rejects, as as outcasts, people who the the world uh, spat out. And he looks at us in our flawed, broken, helpless, hopeless state. He says, "I can do something with you." What? You can do something with me? Yeah, I can do something with you. I can do something miraculous with you. I can make you something mighty, though you are so weak and hopeless and helpless. You're a reject. That's not how I see you. I see your potential. He did this with Peter. He did this with all the disciples. But as soon as he meets Peter in John chapter 1, verse 42, he says, you are Simon, son of Jonah, You shall be called Cephas. In other words, Simon, I see who you are. You're prideful. You're arrogant. You think you're something that you're not. But I'm going to make you something more than you could have ever imagined. I see your potential. I see who you can become. Despite how you see yourself, I see something better. I see something precious. I see something amazing. This is what God does. He looks at us. He sees us in our sinful state, in our broken state, in our weak state. And he says, I can do something with that weakness. I I, I can make this nobody a somebody. I I can use this person to perform miracles in this world. This is what Jesus does with people. This is what Jesus did with Paul. And Paul recognized it. Paul knew he wasn't a powerful apostle because he was previously a pharisee and knew the word so well no he says this in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 9 he says for i am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god what he says i'm not worthy to really be called what god called me to be called because of my past that's what he's saying because of what i've done in the past i'm not really worthy to be called a pastor I could say that. This is what Paul is saying. I persecuted the church. I'm not worthy to be called a pastor. I'm not worthy to be called an, called an apostle. I'm not worthy to be in this position. And he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. It was the grace of God that changed me. It, it was the grace of God that took me from being nothing to becoming something. Despite your past, Jesus wants to use you in miraculous ways. He wants to use you in miraculous ways. He wants to use you to radically transform the world around you. And He has the power to do it. He has the power to do that in your life. He has the power to work in you and through you. He said to the disciples, that's a promise to us as well, He says, you guys are going to do greater things than I ever did. You have the power You have the ability to bring so many people to Jesus. You you have the power to watch miracle after miracle in people's life. But some of it's on us. How is that? Are you willing to be a good soldier? Are you willing to be used as a good soldier for Jesus Christ? Because that's what God's looking for over anything else. He's just looking for willingness. Uh, Are you willing to sign up? Are you willing to count the cost? Yes, there's going to be loss, but there's going to be so much gain in the future. He's not going to force us to be a good soldier. He's not going to make us a good soldier. If we don't want it, if we don't desire it, if we don't desire to be used as a good soldier, are you a good soldier 
of Jesus Christ? Are you a, a mighty man or mighty woman of valor? And when I ask you that, I don't think there's anyone in this room that's going, yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm a mighty man of valor, right? I'm a mighty woman of valor. But here's the deal. It's not about how you see yourself. It's about how Jesus sees you. And he calls you a mighty man of valor. He calls you a mighty woman of valor. And this is what he says. This, is my, this might be what you think about yourself, but this is what I think about you. And I want to use you in amazing ways, but I'm not going to do it against your will. Are you willing? Are you willing to live a life sold out, dedicated, willing to risk it all, not just in the big things, but in the little things, seeking to please Him in everything? Because if we're willing to do that, be faithful in the little things, risking it all in the little things, He's going to use us in ways that will blow our minds I promise you that. I've experienced that firsthand. I've seen it in so many people in my life. And what I see in regards to people being used by God, 99% of the time it doesn't come down to their giftings. It comes down to their willingness. Their willingness. God, am I willing to be used in the way you want to use me? Only you can answer that question. See these men, these 37, their names are mentioned in the Word of God. And the Word of God will never perish. It will never fade away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Word of God's never passing away. Forever these names will be remembered. Why? Because they faithfully serve their king. They risk it all for their king. And God likes making lists of faithful servants. He does it all over the Bible. Hebrews 11, Romans 16, Philemon, verses 23 to 24, Colossians 4, 2, 2 Timothy 1, 16 to 18. Did you write all this down? Did you get this? The point is, God, he, He's making a list of all these faithful servants who have risked it all to serve Him. Yeah, your name's not going to be in the Bible unless it already is. It's not being added to the Bible. But if you think of God in this spiritual history book, let's just imagine. What's God's history book going to say about you? Will your name be listed among the mighty men and women of valor? Will your name be mentioned among those who risked it all for their king? I pray that it will but it takes willingness it takes purposing to be faithful in the little things let's pray Lord we thank you for your word God we thank you that you call us good soldiers though we are not good Lord only you are good you call us mighty though we are weak Lord, you make us something different than what we are. Lord, and I pray that we would purpose to be people that are used by you. Knowing, God, that if we're willing and we're faithful with the little things, you're going to use us in ways that we could never imagine. But I pray our focus wouldn't be on how how amazing you're going to use us, the miraculous ways that you're going to use us. God, I pray that we'd be focused on being used day in and day out with the little things that you ask us to do, knowing 
that you're trying to prepare us for greater things, for bigger things. But just as you focus on the little things, you call us to focus on the little things. So help us to be faithful with the little things. Help us to be good soldiers that start the day off making our bed spiritually, doing the little things that you ask us to do throughout the day, knowing, God, that you want to give us more and, and you're waiting to give us more. And so much of that hinges upon how we respond to you in the little things. Bless everybody that came tonight, God. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Help us to answer this calling as good soldiers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.